You are listening to the Everything You Want to Know About Therapy But We're Too Afraid to Ask podcast with your hosts, Jennifer Trevelli and co-host Jessica Strang. If you ever wanted to start therapy but didn't know where to begin, you've come to the right place. In this podcast, we will offer a Therapy 101 by interviewing experts in the field and asking them anything and everything you wanted to know about therapy before you make your first appointment. Dr. Lisa Conway is a clinical psychologist who is based in Chicago, Illinois. Dr. Conway is board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology by the American Board of Professional Psychology. She also serves on the board of the OCD Midwest. After completing her PhD from the University of Wyoming in 2010, Dr. Conway went on to complete a two-year NIMH postdoctoral fellowship in traumatic stress at the National Crime Victims Research and Treatment Center in Charleston, South Carolina. She's also worked as an assistant professor in the clinical psychology department at Northern Illinois University before entering full-time clinical work. Dr. Conway opened her private practice, Exposure Therapy Chicago, in 2020, with a focus on providing evidence-based practices for anxiety, OCD, BFRBs, and trauma to more adults in need of this care. As a member of SIPACT, she can currently work with clients in 36 states. If that wasn't enough, Dr. Conway is also a member of the TLC Foundation, International OCD Foundation, and the Association for Contextual and Behavioral Science. We are thrilled to be interviewing her on the podcast today. Dr. Lisa Conway, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? Good. How are you? And how do you prefer that I refer to you for today's episode? Uh, it, it, whatever is your preference. Lisa is great. Okay. All right, Lisa. I am so thankful to talk to you today. I will get into all the reasons why I specifically wanted to talk to you because it's such a niche topic that we have um, that I think a lot mm-hmm. of people don't know about. And even myself as a psychologist, I do refer out for these types of topics that we're going to talk about. But um, before we get into that, um, when did you start studying psychology? It's a question I ask all our guests just to kind of get your background so that the audience knows kind of what made you, you know, feel passionate about this field. So when did you start uh, studying psychology? Absolutely. So I was really fortunate to actually get to do a lot of studying of psychology in high school. I oh, was really? in a, yeah, I was in um, international baccalaureate. And so you oh, could kind of okay. track into more intensive courses and I was very fortunate to have an amazing teacher named Renee Lefevre, who sparked my interest, got me excited. I got to do, I think, two years worth of psych classes. That's that amazing. Then, in high school. I mean, that's the mm-hmm. unheard, right? And then had to take a big test about it, but that was okay. So <laughs> it, was, it was phenomenal. And I actually left that class thinking I wanted to go into law. So my really? original... Okay. My path was going to be working with children in who had been abused, being an advocate, being an ally, like doing the legal work. And so I went into college as pre-law. And maybe, as, as I think many of us do, about a year and a half in, I had the like, oh, my gosh, I don't know if this is the right fit for me. Because I could see mm-hmm. not having balance in my life. I could picture like burning the midnight oil in a library, like not having a family and like being present in my life. And so I decided to shift a little bit. So before okay. psychology, I thought I'd be an animal behaviorist, which was really? like my one-off. What is yeah. this? I want to know what this is. Okay. I know it's totally oh my gosh. What does that mean? So I, uh, there was at our zoo, 
when I was growing up, there was a woman who came in and developed this program to help like give monkeys shots without making them anxious. So they hold on to like this bar through the cage and then it gives okay. them some they get snacks. And then she developed like a matching system for our humane society to like match people to dogs based upon personality. So like all this cool animal stuff. And That's then so I took cool. a biology class. And then what happened? Then you're like, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. Not so much my thing. And mm-hmm. so uh, I then decided to just watch uh, Secrets of the Zoo on Disney Plus where they do That's- that stuff right <laughs> that's going to be your touchstone like to to animals it's just we'll watch it on television then right what, and it's fascinating because like, i mean all of this is like science of behavior just human versus animal yeah. like they teach elephants to put their feet on x-ray plates so you don't no have to way. anesthetize them like jaguars go up to the bar uh the bars of their cage and like lean into shots like it is fascinating i highly recommend it's fascinating no i i really do love animals and so i really that's always interesting to me like anything on disney or animal planet i'm, I'm obsessed with right fascinating fascinating um uh, it was not going to be my lifelong journey and so i kind mm-hmm. of did on streaming and then <laughs> decided to go back to kind of what always felt like some sense of home i've been very okay. fortunate that mental health has always been part of the conversation in my family and my social group and so went into psychology, really enjoyed it, and had a great advisor there too who encouraged me to get my PhD just for the sake of transportability of it. Mm-hmm. So the sense of you could go teach, you could be a clinician, you could be a researcher. And so it's under his guidance that I looked at PhD programs. Right. And fortunately ended up at Wyoming, University of Wyoming with my advisor, Matt Gray, who is one of the most wonderful people I've ever met. And through his lab, my focus was on trauma and traumatic stress because it, I still had that thread of wanting to work with kids who had been abused and like yeah. working within family systems. And the catch with Wyoming is there aren't a lot of children. And so, really, really? Is it, <laughs> yeah. it, like, what's, what's the median population age uh, oh. in Wyoming? I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, at the time that you were there. Oh, shoot. I think there were 30,000 people in Laramie. When okay, I was, that's how many, and then and then what? What was the age group? Was it just shifting more towards a, like um thirty plus or like? Uh... I think it's more that like for the number of kids there were, there was already people working in like developmental psych and child focused, and so there just okay. wasn't a ton. Of, like if I need to write a thesis, I need to write a dissertation. He was like, "Hey, what I would recommend is shifting the focus to college sexual assault, which is unfortunately a very prevalent problem," and yes. so that's where my clinical focus changed and I was working a lot with college students I was working to help shape um, and develop interventions to change rape related beliefs mm-hmm. among campus on um, things like rape myths right like um, if you're wearing a short skirt you're asking for it if you invite someone to your mm-hmm. home right like that's that's right. a dangerous behavior that you're choosing so cool area really enjoyed it really like the research side of things and went to a really research heavy postdoc in South Carolina okay and so while there, I was in their traumatic stress network postdoc. So I was working at the VA and at the National Crime Victims Research and Treatment Center. And so wow, okay. all I did was trauma for two years. Yeah. And that was a lot. And so <laughs> it, I mean, uh, I'm glad you said that because, it, you know, yeah. just for our audience to know is that, again, we're, we're human beings. And so there's, mm-hmm. there's and when, when we're trying to figure out what is the area of study that we want to do, of course, I think it's wonderful to try all these different uh, topics and, and research this and have internships and different experiences, but it's also a lot, you know, and I know that that's something mm-hmm. that I've heard across the board with trauma is that um, it's an amazing, 
a fulfilling area, but it's also very difficult emotionally. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the beautiful thing is there is so much support built into that. I mm-hmm. love cohort. Mm-hmm. I got great training. And it was through that that I thought, I, I don't want to go full-time clinical. I want to be an academic. I want to go be kind of like a, a, a version of Matt Gray, my advisor for other people, because he had such a wonderful impact on me. Mm-hmm. And so I left South Carolina, finished my postdoc, came out to Northern Illinois in DeKalb as a professor in their clinical psychology department. And then got to experience another life shifting change about oh a year and a half in. Um, people throw around the term imposter syndrome. I oh. it was thrumming through me all the time. Oh my gosh! Yeah, that just uh, I enjoyed. I love teaching. I enjoy teaching. I like doing a lot of like training and educational stuff. But the the ivory tower kind of vibe of it, the like making sure you're getting grants, like. Can you bring yeah. in the money to fund people? Like that didn't resonate with me and just uh, felt like I was constantly on a treadmill that was picking up speed. And mm-hmm. at some point it wasn't going to work anymore. And so I had the fortunate uh, opportunity to be supervising students learning to do CBT in our clinic. So grad students who like work with a population that comes in and I would both provide supervision. And then if someone ever had a safety related concern, so one of the students was like, hey, someone's talking about suicidal homicidal ideation, they would come get a mm-hmm. fact. Wonderful, okay. right? Then we go in, we do an assessment, check things out. And the, the first time I did it, I was talking to the person, did a safety assessment, they seemed okay. And I kind of didn't want to leave the room. I was like, oh, okay. tell me more about stress. Like, let's talk about, let's do some skill building. I was like, oh, I still love this, right? Yes, this, yes. this therapy and getting a little bit of space from it, this still lives in me and this feels good. And so that was kind of this like, cool starting place of, I did some clinical training. I started looking around, kept brushing up on those skills again, and then left NIU to join a group practice, followed that boss to the next practice he opened, and then started my own in 2020. So it was a little bit of a windy road, but no, it was but I mean, it, worth it. but it's you, you can see like where all the, the the places are that you would go from one point to the next that would be helpful, you know, for the next part mm-hmm. of the journey, right? You know, like you ha- you study behavior and maybe starting with animals, right? And so then, <laughs> and then you, right, and so then you start studying other behaviors that are much more complex as well, you know, like human behavior, and and it, it all makes sense, you know, and it just it's funny how everyone's career path. I have yet to hear the person that goes from point A to B, you know, <clears throat> without, oh my gosh, right? Right. We're not diverging from that. So that's amazing. And so, and then currently, um, what is your position? You said that you started private practice. Can you tell us a little bit more about your current work and practice? Yeah. So it, as many of us did in the pandemic, <laughs> I started a virtual practice and went out on my own mm-hmm. going solo because overhead is low. I like being my own boss. And it also allowed me to kind of in an unfettered way, do the gold standard treatments, the evidence-based treatments that I know are effective and mm-hmm. kind of have my free reign to do that as I saw fit. Some of the OCD stuff, I think people raise eyebrows about a little bit. And so it's nice to know that I can do what is important and what works for my clients. And so tell tell me a little bit more too, because um, you just touched a little bit about OCD and we'll talk about that in a little bit, but what about um, anxiety specifically? Because that's really why I initially contacted you is because yeah. you have area of expertise and then we'll talk about the specific things and, and anxiety that we, we really want to address but what about what interested you in working with um anxiety specifically 
Yeah, so anxiety and traumatic stress were both big focuses of the graduate program out at Wyoming. We had a wonderful CBT-based program. I got to learn from a lot of different supervisors. And so while I got really good at doing prolonged exposure for uh, trauma, I also learned exposure for phobias and social anxiety and generalized anxiety disorder. A little bit of OCD, but I didn't get to see that much while I was there. And the, the general idea that runs underneath all of these therapies is let's help people live bigger, larger, more flexible lives by not being constrained by fear of things that are going to show up that either we can't control thoughts, feelings, sensations, things that kind of like float through or also situations that we want to be in, uh, going to a party, getting a new job, moving, developing social networks. And yet anxiety's kind of got you by the back of the shirt. So it was a cool kind of way of learning across these different presenting concerns, how to help people feel empowered and have a sense of agency versus feeling like their anxiety is the thing kind of keeping them in a cage. That's wonderful. And that's really necessary because I think that one mm-hmm. thing that a lot of people, we talk about in different episodes, so I'm not going to get into all of it, but um, one thing that people don't realize is we all have anxiety. Like, oh my gosh. We, right? we <laughs> can't get rid of it. It's not like, you know, we're like, okay, like, you know, I'm going to just remove it. But no, that would be really harmful and dangerous and yeah. you know, terrible, long lasting effects. But, but yeah, it, we all have it. So how are we going to manage it? And how come, how are some instances where anxiety is helpful to us? And mm-hmm. then, but most of the time when folks come to see us, it's how are they, those anxiety, that anxiety presenting in a non-helpful yeah. you know, way, right? Um, in the past, like I said, we've talked to other guest experts about anxiety, but I specifically want to talk to you because there are two things that you talk a lot about and you work with a lot in your, in your work and your, your therapy, and that is two specific types of anxiety which is BFRB. Can you tell everybody what, what yeah. this crazy acronym is? Because I love using acronyms. <laughs> what is BFRB and why do we need to know about it? Absolutely. No, I, I, I will happily talk about BFRBs all day long okay. because they aren't terribly well known. So a BFRB is a body-focused repetitive behavior. And so it's any kind of repetitive self-grooming behavior that could include... Um, biting, smoothing out nails, chewing the insides of cheeks, pulling out hair, kind of getting like build up off the scalp that leads to physical damage that could lead to loss of things like hair, like skin. And multiple times people have tried to stop and can't or can't reduce the behavior. So I think it is a pretty common thing that actually gets dismissed a lot of like, oh, I bite my nails too. And yes, yet, this is yes. a level of drive for this behavior that is causing great degree of impairment. And someone's like, and, I think, and, yeah, and you're totally, sorry to interrupt, you're totally right. Because there's times that I've known people that are big nail pickers. Mm-hmm. And they're like, I'm just anxious. And I'm like, yep. all right, th- th- but it looks like you're bleeding. You know, that's pretty, uh-huh. it's, it's pretty bad. So that would be a BFRB. It's like the yes. excessive nail picking, right? Absolutely. It's kind of like anything in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, every last diagnostic category ends with and causes functional impairment and so some people may bite their nails and it doesn't get in the way of their life or it doesn't lead Mm -hmm. to intense levels of shame and embarrassment or it doesn't keep them from going out with their friends because they're worried they're going to bleed um onto their table or onto their dress so a bfrb goes above and beyond like oh sometimes i twirl my hair like i get um oh my gosh dr pimple popper is a thing for a reason (laughs) we're all kind of fascinated by our body yes disgusting yes but yes i know many people that are obsessed yes yeah and so 
if you think about it, this is something that we all do all the time. And in fact, they found BFRBs in animals. So animals who are older, really? like, yeah, like dogs or cats will remove hair because they lick so much. Birds will pull out their feathers and it tends to be in response to stress, right? We all do okay. things because they work like lowercase W work. We do it because it makes the thing go away. We're moving towards yeah. capital W work. It makes the thing go away or we learn to tolerate it and we move in the direction that we want to, to have that bigger, more flexible life. So what you're saying is that for a lot of BFRBs, whether it's animals or in humans, mm -hmm. it's stress related, that's a cause. Um, maybe. So that okay. is a beautiful question. And okay. this is where I think too, and mm -hmm. I, I love getting to talk about BFRBs because it is very easy for someone to be told like, hey, you're doing that thing or hey, just stop that thing. Or like, hey, I think you look anxious because you're pulling at your hair. And yeah. in fact, sometimes the BFRB is done to remove the stress or remove the anxiety, remove the um, urge and the thought to do it. It can also be done because it feels good. So okay. one of, okay. yeah, people will say it feels better than sex. It is the way that I feel most accomplished. It is the quickest way for me to get a sense of control or if I'm bored, this feels good. And so, Interesting. It's, yeah, it's both positively and negatively reinforced. So it makes it really hard to quit. It's not just this um, bad habit. So then how long do you feel like, and I know you said that likelihood is the duration of, you know, anything that, that we're doing or feeling or experiencing, it has to be somehow debilitating or, or yeah. having an issue in our life. Is there a duration that some of these BFRBs like that we need to have in order for it to be diagnosed as a BFRB? Like I've been doing this for X amount of time or or is it just more like per what the clinician is feeling is this is kind of causing a, a major issue in your life? Wonderful question. So there's not a duration that there is okay. something like say uh, acute depression uh, stress, yeah, okay. depression, okay. PTSD, these kinds of things. What it tends to look like as this behavior is kind of picked up steam by the time I see someone, I think the most, the shortest duration between onset of the BFRB and someone coming to treatment was maybe a couple years. Oftentimes wow. it's been decades. Wow. Decades, uh, decades yep. of the same behavior. And people are saying, stop doing that or whatever. And then it's like, well, I just, this is my habit or I'm doing this, but um, that's amazing. Right. And, and it waxes and wanes. So people say like, man, sometimes I can stop it before a big event before I want to wear a swimsuit before um, I know photos will be taken at something. So it's not always present all the time. And yet it it's always like a stressor tends to be something that will kick it off. So it could be bad thing. I lost a job, a relationship ended. It could be a good thing. We had a baby. I got a dog. So something yeah. that just shifts the, the kind of landscape of someone's life. But again, it, it's not always stress related. It's not always anxiety related. And yet that is okay. oftentimes a part of it. And then how do we differentiate between, let's say, like a normal, like, I mean, like I always tell people, especially when I used to see younger kids, like kids in adolescence, um, some tics are normal. It's like, it's like yeah. a normal thing. You know what I mean? Like, so we can't always, you know, pathologize, especially children. Absolutely. But how would we do that with BFRBs? Like, what is the differentiation between a normal kind of tic? And then again, maybe I'm getting into too much into the weeds, but what, what, what would you say would be... Um, <laughs> how you differentiate that as a, as a clinician. Yeah, and, and it's tricky, right? Because in psychology, unlike some other medical fields where perhaps you could do a blood test, you're like, oh, if your levels are X, then you 
have this diagnosis. Right? We are we are humans. We are fallible, and it's hard to always get all of the data in that really objective way. So mm-hmm. a lot of what we're doing in this work is what's called a functional a functional analysis. So okay. we're really looking at not just what is the surface behavior, kind of like the the grass that's growing at the ground level. We're getting into the root system underneath it, and so with a tick, which is this more impulsive behavior, could be the verbalization, a physicalization that doesn't feel under someone's control, a BFRB tends to have more of a scope to it. So, and this may be falling a little bit forward ahead into treatment. And yet one of the the best treatments that we have is called the comprehensive behavioral model. And part of that work is you go through five different domains and you said you love an acronym. It involves the acronym SCAMP. So we go stamp. through. What does stamp mean? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and let's get into it. Let's get into the treatment because cool. I, I mean, cool, like, cool. now that we know kind of like, you know, the landscape of what it is. So how do you treat this? Especially after you just said, we could be having somebody seeing us or somebody that's going to, to you know, if, if it's the audience, they're going into a therapy session. They've had this for decades. Yeah. That is tough. You know, so how do, what is that standard of treatment? Absolutely. So I guess, and and that maybe speaks to one of the first important things to look at. So much like anyone presenting into the office, everyone's different, right? One depression case is not another depression case, right? Absolutely. And so one of the first things I'm talking to people about is when is this behavior, this BFRB happening automatically? So it's the habitual, uh, people talk about feeling like they're kind of in a trance. They're kind of staring out into space on the couch, in the car, in the bathroom. And then they look down and they have a, a lap full of hair. Right? Or they realize their yeah. arm hurts because they've been like up and like picking at their uh, skin on their forehead or feeling their skin. Mm-hmm. So automatic is a big piece. The other side is focused. And that's when the behavior is happening on purpose. So I know I have these zits on my face I want to get after. I'm going into the bathroom to take care or I've kind of been targeting and noticing these bumps on my head all day. When I have a chance, I'm going to go after it. So it's kind of a level of uh, what is habitual automatic, what is focused intent. And oftentimes there's a combination of both and it could differ depending upon the setting or kind of um, what people's triggers are. So for that, that's where we talk about stamp. Okay. So the first thing we'll look at are sensory cues. That's the S. And this could be um, red bumps that I see on my face. It could be the kinky curly hairs. It could be I'm running my hand over my arms and I feel my KP bumps. Those are the sensory cues that we're looking for. Cognitive cues are the way that we think about it. So this is fascinating because oftentimes it comes back to messages that people have gotten over time mm-hmm. of, you know, my friend when I was in middle school said, if you get a zit, you pick it and it makes it go away. And that's oh, okay. yeah. <clears throat> I mean, minds only add, they don't subtract. And so there's now a message and a belief that helps to guide this ongoing behavior. So it could be how we're supposed to care for our hair and skin and nails. It could be the cognitive thought of, I can't focus until this thing is gone, this hair, this um, loose skin. Mm-hmm. So that sensory cognitive, affective. So those are the emotional cues, anxiety, stress boredom, sadness, um, and then motor cues. And that's kind of like the, you can think of it as like busy fingers. So okay. this could be someone who's like just kind of naturally running their hand along the back of their neck. They're like up in their hair. Um, sometimes it's the way someone is sitting. So like when they're sitting on the couch, they lean on this one pillow and then their arm is up and then their head is on their, uh, 
or their faces on their hand. And that's when they start feeling. Okay. And then place cues is what's the situation. And the heavy hitters I tend to hear are in bed, in the bathroom, at my desk, either at work or at home, and when I'm commuting. And so, we, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, so we're using stamp or scamp to kind of figure out the extent of the BRFB, right? That's what. Yeah. So how does the BFRB show up for this person? And it can be different depending upon the different types of situations someone is in. This can wax and wane or change over time. And my goal is to help someone use this information that we're doing through this functional analysis to develop a plan that oftentimes people come to me, they're like, I tried no bite nail polish. I hate it. Someone gave me a fidget. It doesn't work. I put band-aids on my fingers. I take them right back off because it annoys me. And in isolation, it's going to be hard for any of those things to work because it's like a a one-stop shop, right? And yet that shop isn't working. (laughs) So we broaden out to start developing plans and refining those strategies to use across different settings, depending upon if they're in public or not, right? If it is, uh, you know, when I'm ha- when I know I've got a really busy, stressful week at work or at school, aces. Then I'm gonna make sure I'm putting on my band aids or my finger cots, the little like um, finger condoms you can get from Walgreens. Yeah, I'm gonna yeah, have yeah. those on in advance of sitting down to work on my emails, so it's not that I have to get up and go get them later. So we just develop a plan, then the plan breaks, and then we refine the plan, then the plan breaks, we refine the plan, and yeah. it's over time transferring that accountability and creativity to the client so they can continue to use this moving forward. I really like that because what you were saying was that if you do like, let's say, for example, the no bite nail polish, that is literally is putting a bandaid on this like Uh because you're not addressing the why, the when, the, you know, the, the amount of time, you know what I mean? The, 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 you know, all of those things. So what you're saying is that we're creating like almost like a, an ongoing template for this person Uh to use and then also have additional coping skills so that whenever they're in X, Y, and Z situation, they have all these different skills that can address it. Absolutely. I think that's a beautiful phrasing, right? This ongoing template, because usually of all the types of things that we can do, and like, I'll tell you, BFRB therapists are really fun. They're probably very creative, I'm guessing. You know? Yeah, and our clients are creative, right? And so it's finding different um, sensory soothing and substitutes, right? Okay. So someone got a mattress sample from, I think, Purple Mattress. And you know how they're kind of squishy memory foam? Yes, yes, yes. That is what they wanted. That was just the squish that they wanted. I've got fabric swatches. There's like all the coolest fidgets. Like all of these interesting things. And also we find substitutes for other types of this behavior too. And I think this is where the shame and embarrassment can be really present because if you've been told your whole life, this is just a bad habit Mm -hmm. and you don't feel comfortable talking about it. And some of the, the BFRBs can progress to, you know, the, the triggers I'm looking for a particularly juicy follicle to pull, right? I look at the scab. I don't just pick the scab. I might put the scab in my mouth. Right. Like, when I, when I pop a zit, I look at the, at what I extruded. And yeah. so it, these very normal things that we do in being curious about our bodies. And yet when they feel that driven, oh man, like I've yeah. gotten told, like no one wants me to talk about this. And so that shame gets really big. And this is where we do things like find substitutes for chewing on skin, chewing on scabs. What is that like? 
And yeah. we all decided craisins are the scabbiest looking food. Oh my gosh, so, totally. That is very creative. I will tell that you, will never that, leave your so mind. Immediately, like I'll never look at a craisin again and not think of a scab now. Right? You know, and, and this is where I think some irreverence, some humor, some creativity yes. comes in because it, certain kinds of uh, impulsive, compulsive behaviors, I think, are more widely understood or discussed. I think even like OCD, I think it's more talked about. Yeah. Uh, if we look at this as something that feels more addictive, more compulsive, like if this was food, if this was alcohol or another substance, you can have it out of your house, right? It's still hard to do. And yet you can have it out of your house. We can create a life where you aren't exposed to those triggers. Mm -hmm. When it's your skin, your hair, your nails, your teeth, we can't remove those. And so you right. are with your triggers all the time. And so yes. helping, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Is it helping normalize and validate for clients is really important because especially when I'm these are these are the intake calls when people call for services that usually end in tears because someone's like I've never talked about this I didn't know there was treatment for this I've tried other things before and it hasn't worked and while I can never make the promise it will go away because it won't right? right you're still a human who has these triggers and these these urges that show up my hope is to shift your relationship to the BFRB. So it's no longer this thing I hate that I'm fighting against and trying to control. It's, oh, here's this thing that's a sign that there's something else going on that I need. And so I, I will- I really like that. Yeah. I really like that. I, 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 just, to, just to add in, the other piece that I was thinking about as you're talking about this is the shame of, you know, if someone is continually telling you this is also a habit, like you can quit that yeah. habit. I'm, I'm not yep. a big fan of people are like, you know, let's just go cold turkey or what well, I did it in like, 30 days and now why can't you yeah. do what I'm saying like like especially when you're talking about behaviors that have been going on for decades the shame <laughs> about like well I'm I'm failing like I'm not even successful at quitting this very ordinary yeah. quote-unquote habit you know what I mean and so to have a label even to say this is known as body focused repetitive behaviors even that kind of I, I'm assuming might alleviate some of that stress like oh this is what's going on yeah like, oh, I have a name to it and guess what I have a treatment to it too Right. And it's not just me. Yes, right? yes, yes, yes. It's not just me. And so I will shamelessly plug one of my colleagues, Jason Yu, who's out in Canada, has a podcast called Fidget. And he okay. shares about his own BFRB. We are in a consult group together. And he made this really cool short animation called Low Fuel Light. Okay. And he used that to share about this ongoing shift in his relationship to his own BFRB of if my car is running low on gas and my engine or my fuel light comes on, I don't get mad at my car, right? What it right. is, it's like, like, oh, my car needs something. And so he talks about, look at like, if he has the urge to do the BFRB or, or if he's picking it up a little bit more, like, oh, what is it that I need? Like, what is the fuel source that I need right now? And so it shifts us out of this relationship of hating this thing that happens into like, oh, this is like my tell, okay. Okay, you know what? I am a little extra tired, right? Or I am nervous about wow. that conversation I have to have. And that's that beautiful space of acceptance and commitment therapy or ACT. Uh, oh my God. Okay, Lisa. Yeah, Lisa you knew I was going to bring it up. You knew I was going to bring it up. Okay, <laughs> this is why, and I hate to say, it, I didn't say this before with, for the audience, but Jennifer has another commitment, so she wasn't able to be with us today. And I know she'd just be like, on her side of the podcast, just gloating and smiling because someone else has told me that I need to do acceptance and, behavior and commitment behavior. So please tell us more then. Please. 
please tell, please school me because I know I'm going to have to do this. <laughs> I love, it's like the slow, forceful, <laughs> motivational interviewing work that's being done. That's uh, we'll get yeah, to the contemplative. Yeah. Um, so I will, what, I I, what I love about ACT in the way I just got this kind of supercharging treatment. It's the lens through which I deliver this work. Because no matter what therapeutic approach I'm using, ACT helps me more readily assist my clients in identifying where is this pain coming from and why? And in fact, what is important enough for me to feel upset and feel pain? So think about mm, okay. going to graduate like what's the school. threshold? Yeah. That's what you're saying. So, okay, okay. And yeah. there's this, this beautiful phrase from Steve Hayes who is a, a pioneer in ACT who says, in our suffering, we find our values. And in mm. our values, we find our suffering. Oh my, that is very powerful. I'm just, I'm, it's, it, yes, yes, yes. You know, it, it, if we didn't care about it, it wouldn't hurt. Absolutely. And so if, if something hurts, that can be the sign of, oh, this is really important to me. Okay. And think about all the things that we do, whether we identify it as like, oh, here's a, a pain I'm approaching, but going to graduate school, right? Having relationships, having pets, like going to the gym, like here's things that cause some discomfort in my life. And I help to teach clients, like you can tolerate this discomfort, especially when it's important to you. And life is not about being pain-free, right? right? Like you said, it's not about eliminating anxiety. That's in fact quite dangerous if you were yeah, anxious. Exactly. I did look it up, by the way. I'm like, what? <laughs> somebody asked me, that's why I'm like, oh, that's what would happen. Of course that would happen. Like if you study anything about the brain, like it would not be good, not good at all. Please don't yeah. your anxiety and your amygdala. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so instead, when we can shift the relationship to the thoughts, the feelings, the sensations that come up, it, right. it lets us have more openness, right? We can't be curious about things that we're scared of. And so it's a cool way of being able to approach things that are important, even though it's hard, and to do it step, step by step. And yet, man, that gives you a bigger life. What, so much freedom. Mm-hmm. But even like what you had said about, and I and I'm gonna I'm gonna look this up about Jason Yu's um yeah. animation, the little that just applies to anything. That doesn't even have to be yep. towards you know the the BFRBs. It, it could be depression, anxiety, life. You know, like what do you need? And it's okay that you need that. And isn't that a beautiful way of responding to ourselves versus the like suck it up? I'll give you something to cry about. Don't be scared of the ball, right? Like all of these emotional control messages that we get. Or And I I think there's some ongoing shift and like a mental health uh, acceptance and conversation that's happening differently now. And yet it's not about not being anxious. And that's something I talk to people about every time we're starting therapy. I can't get rid of your OCD, right? My Mm -hmm. hope is to help it be much more manageable, right? That's the goal of treatment. And can't get rid of the BFRB, can't get rid of the phobia. You may always have some greater sensitivity to these particular Mm -hmm. symptoms, thoughts, what have you. And yet... I want you to not have to feel like it's going to overwhelm or you have to run from it. I don't want to make you faster at getting away from what upsets you. I want you to kind of hold your ground and know when you can turn towards it or allow it to kind of come over you, knowing it will also continue to change. Yeah. And be comfortable with the discomfort. I mean, like there's, there's, right. I mean, there's so much, there's so much fear about uncomfortable situation, uncomfortable, awkward moments. Mm -hmm. And I'm just a big fan of like, they're going to all happen. So you might as well like, you know, sit back and like, you know, figure out how am I going to deal with this because it's going to happen. You know, you're going to have these bad moments, uncomfortable moments, sad times, 
how are we going to deal with that? Um, yeah. Awareness lets us then recruit our resources, right? Okay. And that's this whole idea of like, I love using CBT in all these different forms because it's about learning skills and how to use them differently, that nothing magic happens in the therapy room. I don't do something to you, right? We work on something together so that you then leave and have your quote unquote toolbox is all the more full. So one of the other things that we had been talking about, we kind of hinted a little bit about it in the past, um, but another a niche area um, that you work with extensively is working with OCD. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about what is OCD in case somebody doesn't know what it is? Um, mm-hmm. And, and what, what is that about? Yeah. So OCD is a diagnosis in which someone is experiencing these unwanted intrusive thoughts or images that pop into someone's mind that lead to understandably great distress and discomfort to, that then compulsions are engaged in. These could be behavioral things like tapping surfaces, washing hands, or internal compulsions, so cognitive control, and uh, trying to think of good thoughts to counteract bad thoughts in order to make the anxiety related to the obsessions decrease. And so when are, when are the intrusive thoughts, let's say, normal or not? Because I know I have experienced intrusive thoughts, like yep. looking up from a dream thinking, did that really happen? Did my whole family just die and I'm, I'm in tears and then I think let yeah. me go check on them so that might be right like is everybody in their beds and they are and it was just a dream or, or it was just a thought mm-hmm. that I continued to think was real when does that let's say it doesn't happen often thank goodness for me but like when it does happen what would be considered normal or what would be considered something that I should seek out therapy for awesome question and I, I think this speaks to whether we go back to the idea of BFRBs and say nail biting right or we're talking about these unwanted thoughts that show up. And I, I listen to and watch a lot of true crime. So I Same. make them happen. Right? That's probably why I'm having these thoughts, Lisa, is because all I do is listen to, to Dateline podcasts and watch every murder mystery that right. I can find. But my own fault. Yeah. And, and yet ahead, we sorry. choose that pain, right? I choose yeah. that discomfort yeah. and those triggers, right? Totally. <laughs> all of these things are on a continuum, right? We all have varying levels of anxiety, intrusive thoughts, um, over-grooming behavior, sadness and depression, right? It's not like there were othering people who have more of them. And I like so, that. I really yeah. like that because I feel like people feel like they don't have this, but they start to think about, I might have a BFRB. You know what I mean? I might have, I mean, we definitely have anxiety, but I like that a lot. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, they're all just very normal experiences, right? The, the catch and when people come in for treatment, again, it's the idea of functional impairment. Mm-hmm. So this is getting in the way of my life. And oftentimes when I see people, it's this is getting in the way of my life for me. I only work with adults, right? But sometimes it could be it, a parent is bringing their kid into therapy because it's getting sure. in the way of the family's life. Or someone says like, my spouse wants me here, right? Because my um, uh, compulsions, the, the cleaning, the checking is getting us out of the house late every single time. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of a, a subjective judgment around how much time, space, energy is this taking up? but usually it's more than an hour a day. Okay. So that's a good marker to kind of think about how much are you doing this? And then is it more than an hour a day? Is it, is it pairing something? Like like in the past, I've had clients that let's say will check their stove to make sure it's off. And it will check them so often that they'll be late to work every day. Mm-hmm. They're checking that even though the stove has not been used all day long, you know? So that yep. would be a good example of that as well. Um, what 
what do you know, like when you say like the, the, this impairment at the time that people would go and see, seek out treatment, then what kind of treatment would be specific and best for OCD? As we talked about with the BFRDs, you know, what would be a good treatment for OCD? And, and if you can walk us through what that looks like from start of a session to whatever, you know, like how would, how would cool. somebody be worked with, with this uh, particular issue? Awesome. So one, I had mentioned with BFRBs, usually someone's been doing this for years, if not decades. Okay. The, there isn't this research on BFRBs yet because just not very well uh, studied to date. There's a lot more research on OCD. And the research on OCD, if I remember correctly, says it's on average 12 to 17 years from the start of symptoms for someone to get accurate diagnosis and treatment. Lisa, that's a lot of time. Yeah. <laughs> that's a lot of time. Like, yeah. Oh my goodness. Yes. Yeah. Well, if, if you think about, right, I think these behaviors can sometimes be misunderstood, mm-hmm. right? Or they're addressed in more supportive or talk-based therapy, maybe some or, uh, depth-oriented therapies that actually serve to increase the OCD because one of the, the compulsions that I think is, can be the most insidious is reassurance seeking. So can you explain what that means? Um, yeah. I don't know what that means. Yeah. And so this is essentially the like needing to know for sure. So are these uh-huh. thoughts, might I actually be dangerous? Do you think I left the stove off? And this can be done in very obvious ways of like, oh my gosh, I'm feeling really anxious. Like, do you think I left the stove on to a more subtle, like, you know, I'm just going to go back in and grab a glass of water, you know, before we go. And then I do a little check of the stove. It could also be um, the point of asking me in session, and this is where it's like really being on your game as an OCD therapist, of really subtle looking at my face for reactions. Like, do I think that they are the type of person to leave a stove on? And so it's these, these ways of trying to get assurance and safety about the things that we're scared of. So I might be um, lighting the house on fire. I might hurt someone. I might um, have a medical condition that develops later. All of this is done out of a desire to not have those things happen later on. Okay. And and that's really interesting that the reassurance therapy as a therapist to client, you know what I mean? Because I think that it would be really difficult to, you know, there's there's oftentimes we look to our therapist to kind of give us that guidance you know and and how would you work with somebody that you're like how would how would you work with somebody in therapy that is starting to seek that out in you um about their behaviors yeah it's cool right so these are what i what i love so much about this work is we're just two people having a relationship Mm -hmm. how to best support someone in ongoing growth and change and so I, I love the the times in which, like, even, like, I'll do an eyebrow raise and a client's like, I know I was asking for reassurance. I'm sorry. Or like, yep, that's what I was doing right there. And they'll catch it. Right. And, 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 well, and, and just in terms, because that eyebrow raise, you've seen that, you've given that, like, that nonverbal, like, meta communication probably a million times before that relationship mm-hmm. you've already established, right? Mm-hmm. Look, and, and that speaks to trust and safety. Right. Mm-hmm. Like this work is hard. Talk about act. I mean, I'm asking you to do really hard stuff and we'll talk about what that looks like in treatment in a minute. And so if someone doesn't feel safe in our therapeutic relationship, we can't even get off the ground with right. it. And yet when we can like both hold all of this lightly and ideally with a little bit of humor, a little bit of irreverence, aces, we can create a lot more movement and growth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll talk about two different 
evidence-based treatments for, for OCD. Right. The, okay. the first one is the one I think most people will know, especially if they've done some Googling, which is called exposure and response prevention. Mm-hmm. And if you break it down, it's, it's those two components. So exposure is the over and over again, approaching those situations that cause the discomfort, the anxiety, the obsessions to spike and learning to tolerate being in those situations, um, being in, in those, uh, with those people doing those things without doing compulsions to reduce anxiety. Okay. And so, so they're not doing the behavior. Like, like if I use an example of me with a bad dream and I think it's real and it's, it's a, an intrusive thought, I wouldn't go into everyone's room and checking if they're alive and awake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. It'd be the, like, I can tolerate the discomfort of right now not knowing. So the whole idea is embracing uncertainty. Okay. Like I could say right now, sitting in my own office, my dogs are at daycare right now. I don't know if they're still alive. And I don't mm-hmm. because I mm-hmm. have not actively checked on them. There's a way in which I could say like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I'm excited to be on the podcast. Can yeah. we stop it so I can call the daycare and make sure they're okay? Yeah. And I can also say like, it is important for me to also share about education and what we're doing and yeah I can choose to not know right now and choose to tolerate that not knowing and I can say that knowing this thought will kind of like come and go throughout the rest of the time that we're talking because we brought it up and we're, we're talking about it now yeah. and yet it's not the thing that's like the hand covering my face to where I can't even focus on our conversation because the whole time thinking like are the dogs okay are the dogs okay are the dogs okay mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so it's helping people to eliminate, reduce those uh, compulsions, those things that can be done that include reassurance seeking, include doing over research, Uh, may even be avoiding certain things. So I am a big proponent of limiting social media use for a number of reasons. (laughs) And give us one though, at least I know you probably have a lot of a million. Give us, give us a few of your reasons why you, that would not be something you'd suggest to people to do maybe when they're in the state. So Often, I think there's some beautiful things that social media can do, like providing normalization and information and uh, community. And Mm -hmm. also those things can serve, if if we come back to the idea of a functional analysis again, if I'm only looking at those things because like, but I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay, right? right? Then I'm just feeding the beast of that anxiety that says, every time I have the worry, am I okay? Now I've got to go do this thing to make myself feel better. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in research shows the more time we spend on social media generally the less happy we are right like we do like our minds naturally compare we're comparing all the time and not to demonize it because like I'll sometimes get on Instagram and watch funny dog videos and <laughs> it, it's I'm a big fan of TikTok uh you know the ones that my daughter sends me of making pasta <laughs> so I mean like I don't even look at TikTok but I'm like wow these are great videos yes I there's some wonderful content but then I can yeah. say what you're saying is like the comparative especially what I've heard more and this is not just with, you know, this is totally a side topic, not just with young people, but with older people too. Uh-huh. I was not invited and I saw it all mm. over my social media, you know, like, I, like that, like FOMO and, and the yeah. FOMO being actually real. Like I really was not invited. You know what I mean? I really did not go do this or whatever. And that's hard, even as you get older for some people. Absolutely. And, and it just mm. introduces things that we now are tangling with differently. Right. Mm-hmm. So like, is it, the, the phrase uh, WTF for what's the yeah. function. Um, oh, I like that because I had a different phrase. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I have one of those too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, am I doing this because I want to catch up on what friends are up to? Or like you said, I want to look at a recipe. Or I want to watch this yeah. funny video. Or am I doing this because 
I don't want to be working this project. If I stop with this like constant scrolling that social media does, and I'm going to have to sit with the uncomfortable feelings that I've got. Am I looking at my phone while I'm at a table with other people because I'm anxious and like, this is like a filler behavior. So it's again, kind of back to like, what's, what purpose is this serving for me right now? And just getting curious about it because we all do stuff that moves away from things that don't feel good. Right? Like that's a very innate human thing. And, yeah, and I think that's a great tip, by the way, Lisa, like, what is the function of this? Like, mm-hmm. what, like it, it, even it doesn't matter if it's something that's, you know, problematic or not, but just like, really, what is the point of me doing this? And maybe that's a good way to step away, you know, from some things at times, Absolutely. especially social media. One, it's breaking that trance, right? Mm-hmm. For any of these things, we can get stuck in our own heads or stuck in automatic habitual behaviors. And once I get aware with that present moment awareness, right, I'm paying attention to the present moment on purpose and without judgment. Like, what is it that I need? Mm-hmm. And it could be, I'm going to scroll some more. Cool. It could also be like, you know what? I'd rather go get a cup of coffee, go see my partner, like pet my dog. Go walk, take a walk. And, and, yeah. and so that was, so you were addressing one form of, of therapy for OCD, the exposure and response. Is there anything else that you want our audience to know about that type of treatment for OCD? Yeah, I think the the one thing I would add, and I know I listened to your interview with Sarah Ferris, who's a dear friend and colleague. Yes, yes, our last interview yeah. episode, she was great. She was talking about the difference between uh, habituation, so essentially like do it over and over again, and it gets less hard. It's like watching a scary movie and a scary scene over and over. Like over time, I may not enjoy watching it, and yet I know what the lines are. I know where the props are. Right, I can predict mm-hmm. it. Uh, versus like this behemoth of a scary thing that we're anticipating. So that's like kind of old school. You make an exposure hierarchy, you start at the bottom, you work your way up. And more recent learning around inhibitory learning, which is the idea of our minds remember scary things really quickly. So it's called like one trial learning. I can have one bad experience and that's enough. I -hmm. don't need to think uh, to have multiple experiences where uh, a dog bit me. It could be one dog bit me. So now all dogs are dangerous. Right. And so inhibitory learning is we can't eliminate that learning because neurons that fire together, wire together, that kind of lives mm-hmm. in the brain, we can create new experiences. And so let's talk about exposures that build you out into the life that you want to be in. And this is the piece where ACT is very cool because it's not okay. just I pull out the book that says, oh, if you're, um, if you have uh, contamination related OCD, here's the, the hierarchy that we move through. Like, no, I want to develop the one that is meaningful to you, which may be I go garden, get my hands dirty because that's important to me to have like a gorgeous Mm -hmm. learning grow food versus go sit with raw eggs on my hands because I just need to tolerate yucky feelings on my hands. And and did you feel like with, with, and this is maybe you don't know the answer to this, so I, I, excuse me if you don't, but like, do you feel like the shift from the old school habituation to, to like, you know, having this different approach to it? like statistically is more helpful to people than, you know, the, using the, the old school method. I, I, I think, yes. So I, okay. I'll, what I tell clients about, I'll say it's like, it's the therapist always wins answer in that <laughs> your, your anxiety. That's kind of funny. We're like in Vegas. Yeah. So, yeah. Except it's not the dealer. Yeah. Um, your anxiety might not go down. Mm-hmm. However, your engagement in your life is going to get bigger. And so usually when that happens, as life gets bigger and more varied and more important, anxiety takes up less space, things are less hard. And yet it also shifts us away from 
the thinking of like, if my anxiety is not budging or if this continues to be hard for me, then I'm failing. And that's not what I want someone to think because that's chasing a dragon. That's saying, don't let that thing that scared you before never scare you again. Right. Right. I think, I think that's really, a, I, I was just reading this article in the New York Times and I only got through half of it, so I can't talk about it intelligently <laughs> today, but it was talking about like how, what good is th- talk therapy? If anybody subscribes to the New York Times. I was just reading that. Did yeah. you read this too? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I, I've got to finish the article and maybe then I'll talk to you about that again. But, but it, it is like, but it's interesting that, you know, when we accept, like, maybe Jen was right. Maybe I should be doing this type of therapy. When we accept more <laughs> of the stuff that's happening, it's, it's not because it's an impossibility to completely eradicate something. And the, the um, metaphor that I use is, um, you know, when, when, especially with trauma, when there's a, a trauma that happens, it does leave a scar. I cannot magically erase a scar. Yep. I, it, 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 we just can't, but we can learn how to live with it and we can learn how to live with it in different ways. And so that's what you're basically saying is that using this type of therapy versus the old school habituation is learning how to dip with, live with it in different ways and coping with it for a variety of, of you know, experiences that we're going to have that we can't even sometimes predict because you cannot predict every experience mm-hmm. you're going to have, you know, absolutely so really hopeful and positive. And, and the nice thing that I think is, uh, the ERP would be delivered the same no matter what. It's mm-hmm. the function of how it's acting and how it's mm-hmm. working, that mechanism of change. That's the inhibitory learning versus the habituation. They don't, they aren't um, mutually exclusive. Right? They can both happen in that people yeah. could be doing these things, even though they still stay hard. They're like, oh, over time, this did get a little less hard. And yet it's still painful. Okay. Mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. And there again, that pain is important. Um, and right. funny enough, because this will kind of bridge us into other therapy, you had mentioned that yes, article yes. about talk mm-hmm. therapy. So they quote Dave Tolan, who's an amazing researcher and clinician. And he had a show on, I think it was MTV decades ago called the OCD Project, which. Oh, okay. I haven't heard of this. Okay. It, is, it was fascinating. It was a single season. And what they did is they took people with OCD, put them in a big house with Dave Tolan and a, an assistant, and they did really intense exposures. And this is where I think ERP gets a bad rap because it's not mm-hmm. always delivered elegantly and it can right, be very right. sensationalistic. So this is someone was worried about hitting someone with her car. So they had her drive through a parking lot and they threw like plastic babies at the car. Oh my um, gosh. Okay. Yeah. That's, yeah that's someone was worried about contamination. Yeah, yeah. They had to like go like a gas pump. And oh, so it, those, I, I will tell you, like if we go above and beyond to like blow the doors off of your anxiety, this is something that would never happen and you can tolerate it that's a pretty powerful learning experience. Uh, and yeah. uh, I, I could lick the bottom of my shoe for an exposure with a client. Like I'm never going to someone to do something I won't do. And yet I don't prefer to. I also don't think clients oftentimes go around licking the bottoms of shoes. Right. And so this is the idea of how do we make this more values driven to mm-hmm. where we aren't doing this like wild um wacky kind of exposure it's instead of like no like what it, what are daily things that are that you can't do anymore or you can only white knuckle your way through let's put you back in that life although some, and if someone should do the big stuff we can <laughs> no I think that's really and I, I really do enjoy that because I think that's one of the reasons why Chad and I had started this podcast is because we wanted to talk about therapy in a way that it's actually real with real clinicians that are our guest experts that can tell people this is what it looks like because I think there is a sensational piece to it like you just said um that show but other shows like everyone's seen hoarders everyone's seen Mm -hmm. like you know my like you know 
like 1000 pound life, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like that. And, and again, that that is true for those people. But I also think that there is, I mean, there is a part that has to be um, entertaining, you know, and that's the thing is that sure. I don't particularly care to have therapy entertaining, like as entertainment, you know, that's just my, <laughs> that's just my personal view. I really am not a fan of it. But that's just me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, we're so, so you, preaching you, to the choir. Yeah. Uh, so you were going to tell us about a different type of yeah. that was one type um, for OCD. What is the second that you um, would like to tell everybody about? Yeah. So if you think about like all those things that we just talked about for regards to exposures, those are very powerful learning experiences. A newer, newer within the last 20 years entrant to the field that is just now kind of filtering down from Canada and the Netherlands is mm-hmm. called inference based CBT or ICBT. Okay. Okay. And the the people doing the dissemination and training of ICBT tend to be clinicians with lived experience. So they're people who have gone through ERP on their own. They've gone through a number of other therapies to address their OCD. And there's kind of this like lingering remnants of OCD that kept kind of popping up for them. Mm-hmm. And so this community is deeply passionate. They are very giving and supportive. And so I'm a few months into this ICBT journey and I love it. It's really, really cool. And as someone who describes herself as a CBT therapist, little C, big B, because I'm really behavioral, this is a cognitive intervention. Okay. And so it doesn't involve exposures. What it is, is it talks about identifying what's called an obsessional doubt sequence, which is essentially how is OCD telling you this story that makes you really, really scared and anxious. So instead of, um, you know, kind of like a line in front of you going from the, obsession to the anxiety to the worries about the con- the consequences of what might happen to the compulsion ERP mm-hmm. is at the end it addresses the compulsion the behavioral piece we do a lot of those exposures ICBT starts at the beginning and says if we can notice like oh this is OCD trying to give me a reasoning problem it's a doubting problem I don't need to worry about doing the exposures later on because I already know this is OCD I don't have to listen to it Oh, it's so really, really hitting. We're really kind of just going like instead of having to go through the entire movie, we just got the trailer, the preview, and we're like, okay, now I understand what I need to do. Yes, okay. yes. And um, OCD is uh, not that creative, and mm-hmm. so it tells a story the same way every time. That's <laughs> yes, true. That's <laughs> very you know, true. Yeah. You know, and so I, I've heard people describe it a lot of different ways, which I love. It's kind of like seeing the magician's trick. Right. It's still mm-hmm. interesting to watch, but I get how it works. Or right. it's like um, you said you like true crime. Right. It's like if you're watching the the scary, the intense show and you're on the edge of your seat and you're like really feeling like your heart race and like you're sweaty and all of a sudden someone sneezes. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> yeah. oh, oh, yeah. yeah, here's where I am. So you talk about like this is like getting yourself to sneeze, getting yourself okay. to catch this story is showing up again. How do I come back? And what I love about it is it, it's helping empower clients to more readily see who they are. They call it the real self versus the feared possible self. Mm, so, okay. Uh, and so you're really yeah. looking in the mirror here and just kind of saying yeah. the story that I have. And, what, what, and I don't know because I don't know a lot about this type of treatment, but would you, I mean, would you consider the fact that maybe it's helpful in the sense that we as humans just gravitate towards storytelling because that really is what I think oh, yes. therapy often, right? It's like every hour is a new story. You know, you come yeah. with a story, you know? And so if we can change the story, we can change the ending. 
Absolutely. And like think like our imagination is one of the coolest things that makes us human and mm-hmm. OCD hijacks it. Okay. And so okay. we're teaching people to reground themselves in the moment that they're in. So that's the five senses, right? Touch, taste, sight, mm-hmm. smell, sound. And they talk about also tapping into common sense or kind of internal awareness that we use in other settings. So I, I may not worry about, did I lock the door? Did I feed the dog? Did I pay my taxes? But I do really worry about what if I walked by someone and I hit them and I don't remember. And so it's OCD, just in certain situations, that's where this feared possible self lies, is if I'm worried I might be an unpredictable person, a negligent person, a dangerous person, then all of that OCD construction is to keep me from being that person, even though when we tap back into reality and see these other times when I use my reasoning, I use my checking well, that's who I really am. And so it's a cool, uh, empowering way of talking to clients. And and so like if somebody were to come to, you know, with OCD and given that it's, you said it's newer and, you know, using this type of ICBT um, treatment is, is, is something that's just a newer thing for most of the clinicians. How would they find somebody that is skilled and qualified to work with them with this specific uh, type of, of background? A beautiful question. And there's a, a website that I haven't sent it to you yet. I will. Okay. Called, Please uh, do, yeah. I think it's i-cbt.online, ibctonline.com, something like that. And there's a okay. provider list. It's not a lot of us yet. And okay. yet the the community is growing widely. And I know Sarah had mentioned there's a little bit of a controversy in the field. I think that mm-hmm. is mostly quelled that there was initially, I think, an us versus them that mm-hmm. was playing out versus it's no, it's here's two cool evidence-based treatments. Let's have more options for clients rather than fewer. And I so like there's going to be better collegiality now. Wonderful. Yeah, I will get that. And then that's something that I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit towards the end of our uh, interview about resources and whatnot. Um, before we get into that, though, what is something that people should expect about therapy that you feel like is really important for people to know? Like what, what should you expect and maybe or not expect about being in therapy for the first time? I love that question. Um, and I think something I said a little bit earlier is that therapy isn't magic. Nothing magical happens when I'm only virtual. So when people pop onto the screen or like in an mm-hmm. office, like the door closes, it's instead collaborative work done together. And so you should understand what you're doing and why you should feel heard and respected. And in fact, like if you want to give requests of your therapist, you're like, hey, you know, could we do a little bit more of this thing? You're like, oh, I don't really get that. Be interactive because it's your time. Right? I'm, I'm, I'm sure you feel this in your work, too. Mm-hmm. Right. That I want to know how to best help my clients. And so, it, again, if we're just people having a relationship, let's have those discussions together. Let's make sure you're getting what you need. Um, and I, I like, yeah, I agree with you. I, I, I will say it's something I do often in the beginning of therapy is like, I am just a passenger with yeah. the old school map. You know what I mean? And I've Love maybe it. had, I've gone through this road before, but not with you. And you're driving at the pace you want to drive. And sometimes we stop and we look at the views and sometimes we're driving really fast and sometimes we're really slow. I, it's not me driving though. You know what I mean? So it kind of gives um, that agency to that person that wants to, get whatever they want to get out of therapy. Um, What do you like most about your work? You're so enthused. I I mean, it's so obvious to anybody that's listening to this uh, podcast, but you're so enthused about the work, the people, 
the the getting there, the process. What what is for you the most the thing that you just just love about um, being a clinician, being a therapist? Oh man, uh, is there a more privileged and and exquisitely intimate and and relationship based job? I don't know. Right, I, I get yeah. to see growth and change in a way that, and, and week over week, right, time over time that I, I've gotten to see graduations and babies and weddings. I went to a funeral for someone's mm-hmm. spouse, right? Like there's some of these things that just you're such a part of someone's life that it's it's just a beautiful sense of trust and relationship that I get to do over and over. I love that. I mean, as you're saying that you literally put a smile on my face. It's, oh. It is, it is such a privilege to know, to have a client and to oh, have man. more than one. I mean, obviously more than one client, but like, you know, it's such a privilege to know that person's life and story and to be that, that, you know, that part of their life, you know, whatever it is, whether it's big, small, long-term, short-term, you know, to listen to that, you know, and it's yeah. the best stories. I always tell her the real ones, you know what I mean? That they really are there's no novel that could be better than any of the client, my client's lives, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, what do you think is like big myth in therapy in the field? Because I mean, I hear a lot of them. Like, are you analyzing me at a <laughs> party? And I'm like, no, I'm tired. It's past my bedtime. It's trying to cry. You know? <laughs> but what do you get? What are some of the misunderstood things that you've, that you, um, that you've heard before or a myth that you want to demystify? Yeah. I think what the, the biggest one, this is very act consistent is, thinking we can control our internal experiences, that we can just stop having certain thoughts, that we can just make certain emotions go away, we can just stop certain sensations. And so it, I come very deeply from the, the framework and the grounding that we can't, that we can learn how to tolerate those things better. We can seek out the the situations, utilize the, the soothing, the supports that we have to make them less hard. And yet I'm never going to tell someone they'll never have anxiety again they'll never right. have an, an urge again and I, I could go in a whole soapbox how about how I think that kind of fix it agenda is actually deeply dangerous yeah yeah, yeah. well because it's never gonna work <laughs> that's why it's, yep. right I mean like it's really it's never gonna work yet yeah um before we finish up is there anything else that you want to tell our audience anything anything at all about therapy because it really is a podcast made for people mainly for people that have never been in therapy and some people that have and maybe are looking to switch therapists or address something specific in their lives, or maybe there's also therapists that are listening. I know they are, um, you know, that maybe want to learn more. What, what is it? What's the final uh, thoughts that you have for us, Lisa? About anything that you want to share? So I know a lot of people have already said how important the fit is for therapists and approach. So I I fully agree and will not bang that same drum. I think uh, (laughs) the, the one I'll then choose to focus on is that there is hope. And people do deserve care. And so uh, I'll hear kind of like a, a two sides of an argument, some type of argument, as it were. Um, either people say, I'm worried I'm taking up someone else's spot, right? Mm-hmm. You could be working with someone else. I shouldn't mm-hmm. be here. It's not bad enough. Or someone who's trying to protect me. And it's like, well, I don't want to tell you everything because then you have to sit with it. Mm-hmm. And so I think to disabuse both of those, right? Like, my goal is to get people in and get them the skills and supports they need and then transition them back out. And anyone, even if they don't meet full diagnostic criteria for something like a BFRB or OCD, it doesn't mean you aren't in pain, right? right? And we're talking about life skills. And so let's talk about what helps you 
be more present and, and fully engaged in things that are of meaning to you. And on the other side, I do a lot to take care of me. <laughs> and so that involves my community, my colleagues, the supports that I get, the coping skills that I use to where at that time earlier on when I stepped away because I was too overwhelmed by trauma work, I wasn't going to be a good therapist for those mm-hmm. time. And in fact, I keep a trauma caseload very small now because I know that those are just heavier cases for me. And so I want to do that work, but do it really well. And so that's why I arrange for the caseload that I do. And so if there's ever any worry of like, oh my gosh, I'm overwhelming my therapist. A, I would check, am I actually, because hopefully not. And B, if you are, then you need to end that therapeutic relationship and find something that is a better fit. I think that beautifully said, especially about like, you know, the fear about ending the therapeutic relationship, because I know, you know, in speaking to you and hearing you and your passion and also knowing that you do likely have a lot of great resources if there's stress that you're dealing with. And, um, but there are therapists. I just want to put that out there too, not to be negative. Nellie, you know, that don't have those things or haven't addressed Mm -hmm. them or, or maybe just didn't have the uh, training that um, some Mm -hmm. people have. And so um, it's okay to walk away. It's okay to step into a different uh, therapy office if you're not feeling like, um, you know, just heard once, you know, that heard mostly. And also that you feel comfortable in whatever's happening. And um, I mean, I I did do a long time ago, Lisa, like this whole topic, this episode about what's bad therapy. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that was was a good one, because I feel like it's one of those things where there's an expectation, of course, that it should be great. And it's not always great. Period. Like, just like you said, we can't get rid of all the anxiety. We can't make every therapist wonderful. Unfortunately, there's sometimes people that are in the wrong place. And that's okay. But it's not okay for the client, but it's okay to find someone that is the right fit. For sure. And we're fallible too, right? And hopefully we are doing our own work or get the support for that if we need it, right? And yet to really empower clients of it's it's not a one and done. And even over the course of a lifetime, finding therapists right. with different approaches, different relationships, like that is all, hopefully any good therapist worth their salt, their horse in the race is you getting the care that you need, whether it's with, with someone else. I love that. Well, we're going to finish up. Thank you so much for coming today. This is so fun. Thank you. I really, really appreciate all your information. For more information on Dr. Lisa Conway and her work, you can find more information about her at her website, ExposureTherapyChicago.com, or her email at Lisa at ExposureTherapyChicago.com. Thank you for listening. And as always, subscribe to the Everything You Want to Know About Therapy, But We're Too Afraid to Ask podcast everywhere you listen to good podcasts and give us your five-star review. Follow us on Instagram at therapy underscore podcast underscore for updates, additional information. I will be posting some of the resources that Dr. Conway has given to us in addition to the ICBT that we just discussed and um, messages, any topics and questions that you might want to know, but maybe we're too afraid to ask. Goodbye for now. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us wherever you listen to good podcasts and keep up with episode updates on Instagram. Follow us at therapy underscore podcast underscore. You can send us messages on topics you'd like to hear or anything that comes to mind. Bye for now.